So thanks for your very kind introduction, Dean. Uh, so my name is Phil. I serve as the BC Director of Development and Mobilization. Uh, as uh, Dean mentioned, my wife and I, Louise, we've been in Vancouver now for 12 years. We have two boys, Samuel is nine and Joseph is seven, and they keep us on our toes. But I'm not going to share about my family this morning. I want to share with you about what God is doing uh, in the world, uh, how he's changing uh, lives, uh, how he's impacting the poor, the vulnerable, and uh, the most exploited uh, in our world. But what I'd like to do before we delve into Scripture together and uh, I share a little bit more about our work, uh, some of which is difficult to hear because we are grappling with some of the most complex issues of slavery, complex issues of injustice uh, that we encounter every day, like Dean has said. But before I begin, I'd like to uh, turn our attention to a short video and then we'll, we'll watch that. So that's just a little snapshot of uh, our work. Our casework is not just um, slavery. Our casework also includes uh, property grabbing from widows and orphans, uh, trafficking. We've just started um, casework in the Philippines dealing with the complexity of online uh, child sexual exploitation. And one of the first cases uh, that we were involved in um, was the breaking up of a group of exploited children whose customers were uh, in the UK, uh, across Europe, US, and right here in Canada. And we've been working closely uh, with the RCMP uh, on convicting some of those uh, criminals. Um, our casework also includes uh, citizenship rights, um, also includes forced uh, labor and bonded slavery. Uh, there was mention there in uh, the video about Ghana. Uh, Ghana was our most recent office that we opened up in October of last year, uh, and we conducted our first ever rescue in Ghana just at the beginning of this year. Uh, and it was called Operation Gideon because over two years ago, we met a young boy by the name of Gideon. That's not his real name. That's just a pseudonym. Uh, and we saw that he was exploited as a young boy um, on Lake Volta, which is the largest man-made uh, lake in the world. Uh, and it's estimated that over 30,000 children on that lake alone are trafficked and then exploited there. Um, so that uh, video actually captures pretty well uh, our work, who we are, and how we uh, work with local law enforcement and government to rescue and to protect some of the most vulnerable. But what I want to do uh, this morning is really unpack for us what does Scripture say about justice? What does Scripture say about Jesus, whom we've been singing about this morning? We've spoken and, and heard words uh, about God's kingdom and bringing God's kingdom to earth. But what exactly does that look like um, for us now in, you know, 2015, almost in 2016. What does that look like? What does some of the work? And each of us are, are on a journey towards justice, discovering who we are, who we've created to be, what our gifts, what our talents are, and how God is calling us to serve the most vulnerable, not just around the world, but even here in our local area. What does that look like? What does that even look like for you as a church community 
uh, to bring God's kingdom of grace and mercy, forgiveness, uh, all of those elements. What does that look like right here in Nelson? And um, so I'm going to unpack that for us. And here's the wonders of technology. But what, but what I would like to do, um, very broad brushstroke. I'm not an artist, so I don't know why I'm doing a brushstroke. But uh, a very broad brushstroke on international justice mission. Who are we? And we're a global organization that protects the poor from everyday violence. And what do I mean by everyday violence? Well, I'll unpack that later for you. But basically, the poor, um, the UN estimates that 4 billion of the world's poor live outside of the protection of the law. And what that means is that homes aren't safe, streets aren't safe, schools aren't safe, Communities aren't safe because the laws that you and I take for granted here uh, in Canada simply are so broken and so messed up that the poor aren't protected from that. So our aim at IGM is to protect the poor from violence. We began in 1997 by the human rights lawyer Gary Haugen. He was the voice that you heard on that video there. Uh, and really, it was out on a an experience in Rwanda that he had uh, just after the genocide in 1994. He was leading a UN-led uh, team of investigators and um, really doing some horrific work of uh, categorizing and figuring out how some of the 800,000 people who were brutally murdered through the genocide in Rwanda, how they died. So he, he led a team out of that. And during his time there, he really had an epiphanal moment. What the poor needed and the most vulnerable needed at the time of their death was not a handout or someone to give them access to education, but it was literally someone to stop the hand of the oppressor, literally to stop the exploitation, to stop the, the meat cleaver or the sickle that was used uh, to kill these people. Someone needed to stop that hand. And so it was really out of that experience that International Justice Mission uh, was birthed, and we began in 1997. Uh, to date, we have over 600 full-time staff uh, across the world. And what is really interesting is that 95% of our field office staff are locals, so it's Ugandan lawyers, Ugandan investigators, Ugandan church mobilization people who are taking ownership in their country and seeing some systemic change. And so 95% of all of our staff are nationals, and that's really empowering and really quite exciting to see. So again, we're protecting the poor from everyday violence. And justice systems are so messed up and so broken in the developing world, either through lack of resources and um, through corruption, um, that their court systems, their police forces, simply don't work and function in the ways that we take for granted here in Canada. The Global Slavery Index, which is a third-party body that works closely with governments from around the world, estimated last year that nearly 36 million people um, are currently enslaved in this world. Now, to put that into perspective or to get our heads around that, um, the last census of Canada estimated our 
um, population around, what, 35 million or so? Wow, so all people in Canada, right? Enslaved. In fact, half of all slaves can be found in one country alone. Where do you think that could be? Anyone want to hazard a guess? India, yeah. Half of all slaves can be found, nearly half of all slaves can be found in one place, uh, and that's India. And that's despite the fact that in the developing countries in which we work, there are already laws in place constitutionally to protect the poor from violence. But because of corruption, because they're under-resourced, these laws simply aren't enforced. So it's the poor that pay the cost. The poor are exploited. Uh, the late 1880s, a law was constitutionally passed uh, in India through the British Raj that did away with slavery of people. And yet, 16 million, it's estimated, that are currently enslaved in India alone. But we are seeing change, uh, and that is exciting to see. Um, and uh, in India, we had one case in January of this year um, where we rescued over 300 men, women, and children from a brick kiln factory in southern India, in Chennai. What was remarkable about that particular case, that it was the first case ever recorded in Indian history that a local law enforcement actually did what they ought to do and called on us to help them rescue these 300 individuals. So it was the first case ever recorded in Indian history that the law enforcement agency did the work of investigations and shutting down a brick kiln factory um, that was exploiting the poor. But what is it we do? We protect the poor by, uh, from violence by partnering with local authorities. So we rescue victims. So you saw in the video there that we physically go in with law enforcement agencies and rescue individuals. So we will go in and rescue children from illegal brothels. Um, we will rescue men, women, and children uh, from brick kiln factories or rose farms or silkworm farms. We will rescue young men caught up in slavery on Lake Volta in Ghana. But we do that in partnership with local law enforcement agencies. Secondly, we bring criminals to justice. We want to ensure that the poor will be protected long term. And so we have to ensure that the laws we're going, are going to do exactly what they should do, protect the most vulnerable. And so we bring criminals to justice. So we have IGM lawyers who work the casework. We have investigators who gather the, investi uh, who gather the evidence, securing uh, crime scenes, etc., so that we can bring a strong case to the courts. We also restore survivors, and this is absolutely key to our work. We partner with NGOs ha who have the expertise in post-traumatic counseling, vocational training, and educational training. Because these are children, women, and men who could have been enslaved for years or who've been exploited from the youngest client that we've ever had is age two. And so the trauma is real. And so we want to ensure that those we rescue are actually brought to places of safety and strength. But essentially what we want to do is I want to do myself out of a job and our lawyers want to do ourselves out of a job. And we do this by strengthening justice systems. So we work 
relentlessly, tirelessly, uh, with local law enforcement and governments to ensure that the laws will protect the poor, that, this, that the laws will be protected to the point that their criminal justice system will be strengthened, and in fact, we will do ourselves out of a job. It's estimated at the moment, independently, that we are protecting over 21 million people across the world. So we're seeing great inroads. So that's who we are and what we do, but what does Scripture tell us about God's kingdom? I'm going to read from two passages, uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, and then the Gospel of Mark, uh, and uh, then we're going to unpack um, what Jesus is talking about, the kingdom of heaven. So this is from Matthew 4. If you have your Bible with you, you can follow there or you can follow on the screen behind me. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And listen carefully. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And our second reading is from Mark chapter 4. This is Jesus speaking. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your scripture, the words that speak life and light to us. As we turn now to these words, would you make them come alive for us so that we, as your followers, as those who are um, often stumbling towards your goodness, would leave here transformed, restored, and renewed in our walk with you. So, Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts. Draw us close to Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. So, the kingdom of heaven, what is, what is Jesus talking about here? Throughout the Gospels, uh, Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven in two ways, either the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, and he would often interchange uh, between the two. But what, what is Scripture telling us about the kingdom of heaven? Prior to Jesus coming, and we're going to be entering the season of Advent, you can't deny it, it starts next Sunday, first week of Advent, means Christmas is around the corner, you can't stop Christmas. But in Advent, the season of Advent, um, Advent really means pregnant waiting. So you're waiting in hope. And Advent is the season where you would uh, wait with, uh, with anticipation like a pregnant woman waiting for the birth of her child, that you would wait with expectation that something new is going to occur. 
Well, the same is true for the people of Israel. They were waiting for a Messiah, waiting for the King of Kings. They had heard it through the prophets Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, and they were waiting, pregnant waiting, and it was such a long, long wait. And they were looking for this Messiah to come in triumphantly. And yet, the announcement of, the, of Jesus' birth was quite remarkable, right? Because the angel Gabriel turned up to this uh, young teenager, Mary, from Nazareth, a small town in the middle of nowhere in northern Galilee. And Gabriel pronounces to Mary, you, teenage daughter, you're going to bear the Messiah. And he was born into a refugee family. He had no fixed abode, did Jesus. But when he started his ministry 30 years from his birth, when he started his ministry and started to preach, started to hang about with those on the margins of society, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, giving mercy and forgiveness, pouring it lavishly on those on the margins of society. Something was happening. The kingdom of heaven was stirring. It was coming like an express train. You've seen express trains. I'm sure you've heard it here as it powers through. The ground shakes. The rail shake. You know that something cannot be stopped the locomotive is coming. The same is true for the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus was walking uh, with his disciples, preaching to those on the Mount of Olives and and preaching the Sermon on, on the Mount, excuse me, to hundreds of people, something was stirring. He was showing and bearing witness to the kingdom, the kingdom that would be characterized by justice and peace not through the sword that many were waiting for, but through justice and peace and mercy and forgiveness. When Jesus preached the good news of His kingdom coming to this earth, He caused us to, or He called us into changing direction. There's a Greek word called metanoia, and it's the word that we translate into repent. Now, repent, when we often hear that, it's self inward looking that we should repent and confess our sins. Well, when you look at the Greek and you understand the Greek and and what is meant there, it's actually inviting you to physically change direction. Take a new compass, if they're on the ground, you take a new compass and you put it in in your pocket and you physically change direction. You see, when you hear the kingdom of heaven being preached, when you see it lived out in the life of Jesus, you have got one of two things. You can either refuse to listen to the good news, or you can take it on board, and if you take it on board, then you must leave transformed and changed and renewed. You have to change direction. You don't have a choice to be lukewarm, I'm afraid. There's no middle section or middle road when you encounter Jesus. When you see Him living it out with the prostitutes, when you see Him living it out with those on the margins of society, there's no middle ground. You have to change direction, physically change direction. So when you hear, repent for the kingdom of heaven, what Jesus is saying, Dean, you've got to change direction. You've got to come on board. Or Marlene, you've got to come on board with me. You've got to physically change direction and bring on a new course. Sorry, the more, the more excited I get, the more Scottish I become. So I, uh, I apologize that this is not 
subtitled or whatever. <laughs> but with Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, which was the first scripture that we wrote, Matthew is a fascinating gospel writer. I mean, it's, it's just a great gospel. What, what he's trying to do is embed Jesus the Messiah as the long-awaited one. And so he does this by calling uh, to mind for those who were listening, because it was a, an oral culture, you and I, most of us can read, right? Um, to some degree or another, most of us can read in Canada. But uh, at the time of Jesus, it was a very oral culture. So you would have heard um, things being spoken. And what Matthew does in his gospel is really embed Jesus in the prophets of old. So in the prophets of Isaiah, the prophets of da like Daniel and Ezekiel. And what that would have done to the, those who were listening, they were like, oh, wait a minute, we've heard this before. He's saying that Jesus is the one who, who is this long-awaited Messiah. So um, Matthew embeds uh, Jesus in the prophets. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God also provides a fresh vision of rescue and restoration. And we see that throughout all of the gospel uh, message. There's one of hope, of salvation, which essentially means restoration, being saved from something, being restored, being rescued. And that's essentially what our work is at IGM, to rescue, to physically restore people to wholeness and to joy, and to life in all of its fullness. We also heard um, from Mark's gospel that, curiously, the kingdom of heaven will provide shelter to the whole world. There's this now and not yet element to God's kingdom in the gospels. Now, in that we can experience it now. We can be transformed, like we can leave here transformed when we encounter Jesus. We can be restored. But like Advent, we are still waiting with pregnant hope. When all will be made well, where every tear will be wiped away from our eye, where death will no longer have a sting upon us, where we will be reunited with those who have long since gone, there's this now and not yet. The kingdom is not yet fully uh, fulfilled in our presence, but we see glimpses. And I, in fact, saw glimpses of God's kingdom when I was with Dean and Marlene. So I want to introduce you to three people. Um, the first is going to be Juliana, but I, I, I want to share here, sorry, leaping ahead. Um, Dean and Marlene and myself and some others, we visited two field offices uh, back uh, earlier this year. That was IGM Uganda. Their casework there is property grabbing and land right issues. Uh, and then we uh, went to IGM Rwanda. We now have closed our operations there uh, for good reasons, uh, and I'd be happy to chat to you uh, later about that. Um, but the complex casework that they were dealing with was sexual violence against children, which is some of the, not that you would want to categorize um, our casework, but there's something particular um, when children are ex exploited and abused. But what I want to do is introduce you to three people, because it's really in the stories of real people that this all makes sense. So the first is Juliana. Um, so everyone meet Juliana. Uh, Juliana is a 70-year-old grandmother. 
Sadly, in Uganda, many widows uh, and orphans suffer from opportunistic criminals who seek to exploit, uh, to exploit, exploit them. Uh, and Juliana suffered at an opportunistic criminal's hands um, over a number of months who basically turned up and said, uh, your land uh, is no longer yours. Uh, I'm some distant relative uh, and I'm going to set up shop here and take your land. Thankfully, we got hold of her, uh, her work, uh, her, um, her plight rather, through her, her cousin who attended one of our justice churches in Uganda and we got hold of her casework and we brought that case uh, to court uh, and we sought the conviction of this opportunistic criminal. Um, not after a long battle, uh, which resulted sadly in violence against uh, Juliana at the hands of a machete. Um, she survived that attack mercifully, um, but she is one of thousands uh, in Uganda that suffers from either gangs of criminals who turn up who want to take their land, uh, and we work tirelessly to protect them. Second person is Agnes. Uh, this is a beautiful, uh, she's just a beautiful young lady. We met Agnes uh, in Rwanda. Uh, Agnes has got a particularly harrowing experience. Uh, she was uh, brutally raped and abused um, by a, an elderly gentleman. Uh, and some of, the, some of the complexity that we deal with um, in the developing world is that, sadly, um, police just don't have the skills um, that our police forces here have. So skills like how do you gather evidence and how do you protect that evidence, simple little things like that, or how do you protect a crime scene, or how soon after abuse takes place uh, should we be calling uh, medical help um, to ensure that we gather the right evidence to seek a conviction. Um, Agnes's case was comp uh, pretty complex because the police just didn't do their work. Uh, and so we called upon our investigators to do a lot of our groundwork, um, eventually resulting in that uh, elderly gentleman being brought to justice. Uh, but this now is a picture of Agnes having gone through our post-traumatic counselling um, she was in a place called, um, I think it was the, the school of, I forget what the school's name was, um, but it was a mercy ministry where she and her son that she gave birth to following uh, the abuse uh, were now living. She had some vocational training for sewing so that she had a skill after she, she uh, went through the counseling. Um, but now she is restored to this place of safety and strength. That's Agnes. But the last person I want you to meet, uh, I'm going to call him Thomas. Um, one of the most remarkable uh, events that Dean and Marlene and myself went to uh, was the graduation ceremony of about 13 or 14 children who had suffered uh, abuse, uh, sexual abuse. Uh, and we went to their graduation ceremony so we heard their stories, which were horrific, um, very young children being exploited. Uh, and then we were celebrating with them at their graduation. And their celebration was that they had gone through this post-traumatic counseling behavioral therapy. And Thomas's uh, story 
stood out to me. He suffered at the hands uh, of extended family in Kigali. In fact, it was his aunt uh, that had abused him um, quite horrifically. But there was something quite incredible that happened that ma really made God's kingdom come alive to me. Um, I'm a Scot, and I have enough time dancing at a Cayley. And uh, after the graduation ceremony, all the children received a, a small certificate, and they shook their hands, and it was quite a, a moving and powerful experience. Then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, there's the beat of the African drum, and there's whoops and hollers and celebration and dancing. I tell you, Africans know how to dance and celebrate. But for me, the only right thing for me to do was to join with them. And I joined them not because of, um, you know, it felt like the right thing to do and I felt obliged to do it. But for a moment, and I think Dina Marlene would testify this, for a moment, that now and not yet feeling of God's kingdom, you know, that we can experience now and yet we're waiting for its fulfillment, the veil between heaven and earth became paper thin. This is what it means to dance upon injustice. This is what it means when God's kingdom comes to earth and you see those who had been abused and, and raped and exploited, some of the most vulnerable children that you would come across, some who were street children just right on the margins of society, now dancing to the beat of the African drum, and I joined with them because that is what it means when God's kingdom comes to earth and you experience mercy and forgiveness and wholeness and restoration and salvation and rescue. And I made an absolute fool of myself. Dina Marlene can testify, but that is God's kingdom. That is what it means to dance upon injustice. And that is what it means for you and I to experience it. We are invited into that mysterious beauty. The mysterious beauty where the, the vulnerable and the poor and the exploited who are known by name, who are known by name by the Creator God, where we can come alongside them and we can dance with them. We can dance with their restoration and their salvation. So my prayer for you this morning as you uh, try to unpack God's kingdom as a community, um, that you would live out the values of the kingdom that your life would be characterized by peace, that your life would be characterized by justice, that your life would be characterized by love and mercy, and that people would see the evidence of the kingdom in your life and in what you do here. So thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to share with you, and uh, I'm not sure what happens next, but I'm just going to hand it over to the worship team.